Greetings from Covenant Community of LJ, Georgia. We want to thank you for taking the time to listen to these messages God has provided to our fellowship from His Word. May He bless you richly as you seek Him. We'd like to invite you to be with us in person someday soon. And for information on that, visit us at covenantcommunitylj.com. And now, let's open up God's Word. Which is pretty exciting. Yeah, no, we can still celebrate that. It's pretty great. Um, these are, this is going to be a great tool for ministry. Uh, we learned last week it's, the building is not the church, uh, but the church is made up of people who are the building. We'll get there. But as we were trying to make decisions on whether or not to purchase these facilities, what we know is uh, that as we began to think of what, what is God's vision for our church, where are we moving, we, we began to search the scriptures and see that it was important for us to know what God desires for his church. Our vision, our ideas, and different things like that are really irrelevant. God's ideas about what he wants to do in his church are far more important. And so we've been seeking that out, and that sort of resulted in a desire to do this series. And that led us to this question, why church? In 2019, why church? It, 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 I know I, I bump into people, and it's like, do I even need a church? Does it matter? <clears throat> in 2019, do we even need a church at all? And I think what we talked about last week is we recognize that our culture has some concerns about the church, and have concerns, honestly, about all institutions and organizations, and they've, they begin to look at them with a little bit of skepticism and a little bit of sort of eroded trust, and, and we're okay with sort of watching them and spectating them, but belonging to them is like a different level. And when we take that attitude with us to the church, it produces sort of this spectator mentality where we sort of look at it and say, well... You know, I'll go to church and maybe they have a good show. Maybe I can get something out of it. This is, you know, we think of a sort of a consumer mentality. We go and evaluate as a spectator. And that whole process leads us uh, to stay at an arm's length. And for Christians, here's the problem is that we have, have decided to go to church rather than belong to the church. And there's a tremendous difference between going to church and belonging to the church. The church is incredibly special. So anyway, as we look at this, answer this question, why church? Uh, I started thinking, and most people, I think, are asking this question because they, they underestimate God's heart for his people, God's heart for his church and his plan for it. I honestly think that, that we underestimate the value of church in our life. And there, as I said last week, there were misunderstandings that cause us to keep our distance uh, and honestly, I think one of those is that many think of the church as a man-made organization that's optional for believers to be a part of. Like God made it as an activity for you to take part in. But God went a step further and he actually made you part of the church. You don't take part in it. You are the church. And when we belong to it, we begin to experience everything that he intended for us. Gone are the days of standing on the outside evaluating. And the days have come where we enter into and belong to the body of Christ. You see, the church cannot be appreciated at a distance. It was never supposed to be looked at. It was supposed to be entered into. It's what God desires for us. And so my prayer is that through this series, you'll allow yourself to sort of recognize that you are the church, that you gotta belong before you can experience the real community that God intended for us. And so in doing this, we were breaking down four metaphors uh, that we believe shine light on a different facet of how God sees the church. We recognize that it's totally possible to put too much pressure on any given metaphor, and you can stretch it and push it too hard and crush it, but if we look at the heartbeat behind these things, we can see uh, what God has given for us. Each of these metaphors gives us this perspective. So our prayer, honestly, 
is that as you see the church, the way that God sees the church, you will allow yourself to really belong to it. So last week, we sort of defined the church from this Greek word, ekklesia. And this whole deal is that uh, it's a Greek word that, that stands for this ex, sort of the preposition, out of and, and from. And then uh, kaleo is the, the other word, ekklesia, kind of smush them together. And you get this assembly that is called out of. And we get that we are called out of the world, but God has also called us into something. And we get that as implied in the New Testament, that he has called us into relationship with him and also relationship with one another. And so the church then consists of those who the Lord has called out of the world and into the union of fellowship with both him and into communion with one another. And that's why we say it's so important to belong. Ecclesia, this, this church, the, the called out ones that are called into, this is what we are, is what God intended for us. We recognize that there's a challenge here. I, I just want to be honest. Belonging is difficult. It's different than just going to spectate. It requires a humility and, and time and a certain level of submission to take all the good things that we enjoy from church and all the good things that are actually difficult from church, like church discipline and different things. Belonging uh, is different. But the risk of spectating is even worse. If we go and we see this, that spectating leads us to an isolated, critical spirit that God does not want for us. So last week we looked at how God has put us together as living stones. He's building this structure where he is the cornerstone for his glory that he inhabits his people, that we are living stones, sort of interconnected, interdependent, on one another and how he leads us to that where we share wisdom, resources, and decisions. Now this week, this week, we're transitioning into this whole new thing that we are the bride of Christ. God is the bridegroom and we are the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom and we, the church, are the bride. And so I want you to see where we get some of this thinking from. So uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and you'll see this. This is beautiful and I hope that just because you've heard this term before, that you don't let this bounce off your heart as something, oh yeah, I've heard this. Like, really take this in. Imagine hearing this for the first time, that you are the bride of Christ. Take this in. So this is Ephesians chapter 5. You hear this passage a lot in weddings, and for good reason. It's really beautiful, but it speaks even deeper than just the human relationship. It's a mystery. Let's look at it in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5. It says, husbands, love your wives. I get an amen for all the wives. <laughs> as Christ, this, this is the cool part. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see this language? That as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Listen to his heart behind this. Hear the tenderness. That he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he may present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Wow. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. This is beautiful. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a member shall leave, or a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul just, you can see this as he's writing, this kind of steps back, and he's like, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul, as he's writing this, sort of to give instruction on how we are to be, to be married together. This is the most 
powerful relationship of all human relationships, Paul steps back and it's like, are you hearing this? And, and for you guys, I mean, let this sink in for a second. God is comparing his relationship to his church like a marriage relationship and his love for us, his church, as a bridegroom for a bride. Listen, can I be honest? There are a lot of different metaphors God could have used that would have required a lot less of him, that would have communicated a lot less to us and put us in a lot lesser position. He could have said, I want you to know this, like a boss causes his employee to work for him, that is how I see the church. Are you with me? Like he could have said, as a dictator sees his people, that's how, that's not what he says. And this is scandalous. This is outrageous, and if you look at this, it, it might seem like, oh yeah, the church is the bride of Christ, I've always heard that, but I hope you'll see this and let it land in your heart for just a second. The God who spoke the universe into existence said, I don't see you as something that's unimportant. In fact, you are like a bride to me. Now, okay, I, I'm a dude, okay, and, and I'll be honest, in college when I, when I came across this, I was like, this kind of weirded me out, this whole bride thing. I don't understand how I feel about this. And I get that. Sometimes, man, we, we see this whole imagery. And, and let me just calm your nerves on this. God sees his church collectively as his bride. You personally are not. It's not an individual thing. It's all of us together. This is how he sees us. Remember I told you you can push a metaphor a little bit too far. Don't push it so far uh, that it gets weird. Okay? Like This is a beautiful thing God has given to us. And I hope you can see this. Collectively, he's saying, you all, you people, you are really important to me. You are like a bride to me. I don't, I don't even know if I can explain this. I went into our prayer team and I was like, they're like, how can we pray for you? I was like, I have to explain something that I can't explain. That it's not within my power to reveal to a human heart. We can't understand this. It's too big for us. And even the chapter before this in Ephesians uh, chapter four, we read it while we were in there. Ruthie pulled it out. And we see this, that God, uh, Paul, the author here, he's saying, God, will you perform a miracle in the heart of your people so that together they can understand how huge your love is for them, how high and how deep? Like that's that whole passage where you're saying that together they can understand your love for them because that is a supernatural thing. And I'm standing back at this and I'm like, I'm telling you, you're the bride of Christ. I know you're like, okay, cool. But what I want to land in your heart is that this could have been any other kind of relationship, but God together as his church has called us his bride. And this, to me, is a huge answer to the question, why church? Why? Because it's the bride of Christ. God loves his church. And so I, I want to I do this. I'm going to break this down into two parts, and each part has two pieces. And so uh, the, the first part here, I'm going to make sense of this, uh, that, that I believe that it's important for us at church to have this, this conversation. I know back in college, there was this thing where you had the DTR. You all know what I'm talking about? The define the relationship talk. Where, you know, in your relationship, like we really need to talk about where we're going, what we are. Well, I think it's important for us to step back and see this from God's perspective and let him do that. Okay, it's time to have this conversation. It's time to define the relationship. That's part one. And part two, we're going to determine our response. And so uh, the first piece of this part one, define the relationship, is, is this truth I want you to get across. That we, as a church, are betrothed. We are betrothed. Now, we get this from several places in Scripture, actually Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, it's a beautiful thing that God uh, continually uses this intimate imagery uh, with his people. He certainly does that with the church. In 2 Corinthians eleven two, it says this, and Paul's bringing up this imagery. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Now, this is Paul talking to this church that he's begun. He's saying, I feel a jealousy towards you since I, Paul, betrothed you, the church, to one husband, Jesus. 
to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And this is just a one little piece. But Paul is saying, I get this, that, that I'm over here and I'm introducing you to your bridegroom. You're like the bride and I want to pre- present you as a pure virgin to Christ. We are betrothed. That's what he says. We are betrothed. Now let's be careful not to put our American sort of marriage traditions and stuff on top of this. Let's step back for a minute and look at some ancient Hebrew traditions. I think it's going to be kind of a surprise. Some of you guys who are familiar, you've been in the Bible a lot. You're going to be like, I think I see where you're going with this. So ancient Jewish traditions. This is, this is, this is really beautiful. Originally, there was an arrangement, okay? There's an arrangement that was made. And a lot of times, like, you get this, a marriage is arranged. Some of these people, it wasn't all just about, you know, romance. Romance, especially American dating, is all about sort of putting up a front to, per, per, I don't know, be perceived as more awesome than you are. Uh, it's, like, it's like really careful lying. It's like, that's the whole point of social media, right? Like, you can edit everything and make yourself look amazing. Like, that's, that's American dating, that's the whole deal. A marriage arrangement, totally different setup, totally different vibe. It's before people even get to meet. You don't get to check the social media page. There's an arrangement that's made. And this is really cool, actually, in some ways that they do this. But an agreement was made that a bride would, or would eventually be sort of betrothed to, promised to a man. And so the first thing that had to happen was there was an arrangement where there was an agreement. And once they reached an agreement, uh, this betrothal ceremony was something that happened. Now, we don't use this word betrothed a whole lot in America. If you did, people would think you were weird. Uh, don't, don't propose like that. I would like you to be betrothed to me. The girl will say no, and that's the end of it. So don't do that. Um, but this word betrothal is actually beautiful. Um, in, in ancient Jewish history, it goes like this. First, these two couples individually, they were immersed into water. Okay, And this was a picture of sort of a ceremonial cleansing before they stepped into this commitment that they made. They were also making vows, okay? They were, they were promising to their intentions to follow through and to marry this person when the day came. They were entering into uh, an agreement, kind of like what we say, will you marry me? And they say, yes. Like, that's what's happening here. They make their vows. Then they actually exchanged rings, which I think is cool, and they sealed that with a cup of wine, okay? And, and then after that, the covenant, sort of the betrothal covenant was set up between these two, and they would celebrate with a feast, now, that would end, and they would all go home, and, you know, they, they didn't do weddings quite as quickly sometimes as we do. There was a preparation period, okay? And the groom would go home, and his intention was to prepare a place, to prepare a room for the bride, and he would go away. And meanwhile, while he's doing that, uh, the Jewish bride would be sort of watched for her purity, and, you know, this period would last anywhere from nine months to a year. You can probably understand why, uh, but the bride was observed for her purity and during this time, it was an active sort of waiting for her, okay? Like, there was a, she was consecrating herself, setting herself apart, preparing in every way possible for this wedding day that was to come to be a, a, a proper wife to this bridegroom that she was betrothed to. And while she was there, she was also making a wedding dress. They didn't go down to the bridal shop and pick something out. Like, they, you know, it wasn't say yes to the dress. It was say yes to the sewing machine. I guess they didn't have a sewing machine. I don't know, whatever they did. Say yes to your mother-in-law to help you. Uh, But they had to make some. And and then they also had, like, a week, okay? It wasn't just, like, a one-day thing, kind of like we do. And over, I looked at this, and the the Jewish people now, they've shortened this up. Weddings are expensive. You can see why. (laughs) But they threw a big party. Sometimes it went up to a week. And so she would have clothes for this. And during this year, she's preparing garments to wear into that. Now, uh, this this preparation period, like I said, would last for a while. But it it was never really defined when it was going to be over, okay? Like, you never really knew when the bridegroom was going to show up. This was the tradition. 
And so people would want to know when, when the bridegroom was coming to get his bride for the wedding. And not even the bride knew. In fact, uh, they would ask the bridegroom, when is the wedding? And his traditional answer would be, only my father knows. And one day, they would finally, the father would tell his son, he would say, son, go and get your bride. And so that's what he would do. He would gather up all his guys, and they would blow the shofar, and it would be, it would be announced, the bridegroom is coming. And they would go in, and they would be looking for these lamps that were lit, and, lit, lit, and, that's not a real word, they were, they were, that were lit, these <laughs> Maybe it is. I don't know. And LJ could be. All right. But there's, there's a, <laughs> Steve's always inventing new words. Where is he? I mean, he's, he's always teaching us LJ words. Anyway, that's a new one. Litton. So the, the bride Litton some lamps and there was, they, they had oil in them and they would just leave them, you know, lit throughout the night, which was really cool. And so they would look for these tradition. They would come at night and it was sort of the bride and their family's job. When it got close, they knew that the bride could come any day with anticipation. They would keep these lamps lit. So the bride would swoop in and he would grab his bride. I don't know if he'd grab her, but he would get her and take her home. Okay, he would take her to his father's house where later there would be a wedding. And at this wedding, uh, they would make their vows to one another. They would seal that with a cup of wine and their wedding, uh, their marriage would be consummated. And that would start a seven day, usually celebration. It was a giant party. And this is where the priorities were a little bit different. Ancient Jerusalem, the, the party was really more to honor the groom than the bride. We've got a flip flop. But it was all about the groom. They were, they were giving honor to him. And that's one of the reasons why the bride would come in uh, with all of her garments to, uh, to show off and, and be beautiful and to honor the groom. And then, of course, at the end of that incredible party that they threw that just went on and on with family all together celebrating this union of two people and the future they would have, the couple would set out into their life together. Now, you Bible scholars, you who are... The, the bride of Christ may recognize some, some of the things that have happened here. And I, and I want to circle back with this uh, picture of, through a gospel lens. And I want you to see what God has done for his bride. Because I think this is beautiful. God has made an arrangement. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, this very same book, it says that before the foundations of the world, you were chosen. And that we have been betrothed. We have been saved and set apart to our bridegroom who is Jesus Christ. And he has given us the privilege to give us the power to become uh, the, the children of God. He's, he said, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And in that way, we make our vows to him as we confess those. He's given us the ring of the Holy Spirit that is a, a down payment, a seal of his coming. And he's also, if you can remember, just before he went to the cross, he had the last supper with him. And he showed them this cup of wine and this this broken bread, and he pointed to it, and he says, this is the new covenant. This is my blood. This is my body. Take and drink. Eat of it in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant. And he said, he said something really peculiar there. He said, I'm not going to have any more of the fruit of the vine until one day we're all back again together. Listen, <laughs> this is cool. He's sitting there waiting. He sealed that. Our bridegroom is, is holding out. Here's the crazy thing is right now, we who are the baptized, we've been immersed into the body. We've been immersed into Christ. We've also been baptized as well. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we are not married to him yet, but we are betrothed to him as the church. This is crazy. And we are in a preparation period where we know that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. That's what he said, right? Pretty amazing. He said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. 
And they said, well, when are you coming? He said, I don't know. Only my father knows the date of my coming. And we, as the bride of Christ, have been called into a preparation season where we sit back and we sort of hold our breath waiting for our bridegroom to come. And we sort of keep this active anticipation alive in our hearts as we sort of light these, these oil lamps waiting for his return. But one day we know that the king will tell his son to go and retrieve his bride. And the trumpets will sound and the clouds will split and the bride in Christ, the dead in Christ will rise. And one day we will meet him in the air and there will be a wedding feast it's going to be incredible. It's in Revelation 19. We're going to read it in a minute. It's awesome. We're going to have a wedding feast with him where we will be the bride presented to the Lamb of God. And we will become one as Jesus prayed in John, uh, through in his high priestly prayer, John 15, 16, 17. As he was praying that, that he and the church would become one. It was almost scandalous how we could become one with the almighty God like this. Not in a, in a we are God sense, but he's invited us into unity with him and a life together for eternity. And can I be honest, we are headed for a party, those of you who are in Christ. And that is game changing, right? I mean, isn't that awesome to know? It's beautiful. And so the first thing of part one is, is define the relationships. You need to get this, that you are betrothed. You and I are betrothed. We together really are betrothed to our God. The second piece of this part is this, that we are beloved. You are loved. God is not doing this out of obligation alone. He's doing it for his glory, yes. But you know what's so glorious about it? Is that God is love. And that we didn't deserve to be loved. When, if you can remember back to the passage we read in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about how Christ gave himself up for his church. I want you to think about when that happened, how that happened, and how crazy it is that that happened at all. Uh, listen, Jesus loves his church deeply and sacrificially. Most famous scripture around John 3, 16 says this, for God so loved the world. Did you hear that? I know you've heard this verse before, but listen, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is crazy. This is scandalous. God loves the world. Have you seen us, by the way? Have you seen the world lately? I don't watch the news. I can't take it. I wonder how easy it would have been for God to turn off us like the news for me. Like, I just can't deal with all this nonsense. But God, instead of saying, I don't, you know, this is too messed up for me. This is worse than I ever imagined. Forget about it. God instead says, this is, this is, this is my pride. These are people I love. I so love the world that I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to give any, call, any price for them because I love them. I like them. I made them. I want them. I want to be one with them. I want to restore and redeem and renew and make them in right fellowship with me. I want to put back what's broken. I'm not okay with it being messed up like this. Instead of just getting mad and saying, forget it, I'm going to fall in love and fix it. That's what he does. And so God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In Romans 5.8 it says this, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that's, that's what you looked like when you got the arrangement. When the arrangement was made for you to become betrothed to our God, you were not, you know, all edited up on, you know, social media and looking perfect. Like, it wasn't, it was the, what, like, 
five in the morning, no shower, no makeup picture, where you're just like, you know, like that was, except even worse than that, like, an external thing would have been one thing, but internal, listen, sin is not something that we do, sin is something that, that, that our sinful nature, our rebellion toward God produces these actions. It's not like, oh, well, oops, I goofed, but in, in my heart, I'm, I'm really a good person. Listen, the Bible says that none of us are good on our, on our own, that, that God saves us and places his spirit in us and causes us to be uh, more and more like him. But we've rebelled, we've sinned, we've lied, we've literally broken, broken virtually all the Ten Commandments. Any of us, when you look at Christ's standards for them, none of us can step back and be like, yeah, I got this, I'm a good person. God should be betrothed to me. I'm a worthy wife to the King of Kings. Are you kidding me? Like, this is crazy. And it says this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Died for us. Stop and think about that. Died for us. We could spend another several weeks there, but I want to get to this other part. We look at this, define the relationship. You really got to get this in your heart. We are betrothed as the body of Christ, okay? We are as the bride of Christ. We'll get to the body next week. I'm excited about that, by the way. We are betrothed. We are also beloved, okay? And God is the one who defines this relationship, not you, okay? He's the one that leads into this, and this is who he says that you are. And when you allow yourself to receive that, that is going to produce a response in you, which is why I say this, that it's important that we determine our response. Okay, and our response, I'm going to break this down into two pieces. The first thing I'm going to say this is that we pursue purity. Now, this makes sense when we talk about this in a, in a bride-bridegroom relationship, in a betrothal-type atmosphere. If that's the nature of our relationship, we get this, that we pursue purity. Now, what's so beautiful to me, and I hope you get this through this, is that we don't pursue purity in order to entice the bridegroom to love us. The arrangement has already been made. Are you with me? The ring's already been put on. There's already been vows that have been It's been sealed with a cup of wine. We, are, we who are in Christ, are, our, our relationship with him is, is already defined because he has defined it in and of himself. And we pursue purity, not so that we could somehow entice God to like us and love us and one day want to be with us. We pursue purity because we are betrothed, because we are beloved. This is why we want to present ourselves in a pure lifestyle towards him. Are you seeing this? It's a different motivation from, oh, good people go to heaven. Listen, if, if saved, rescued, redeemed, ransomed, bought back people go to heaven. People that God has redeemed and rescued from our sin are the ones that go to heaven. It's not something that we can earn. Our, our righteous deeds are never going to be enough to deal with our sin debt. God is the one who's able to establish this relationship. But we pursue purity because of our betrothal, because we are beloved. So what is our response as revealed through the gospel? How do we do this? So 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2 and 3. I want to read this to you again with a few extra uh, bits to it. It says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Because we are betrothed, we pursue a pure, devoted relationship to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says it this way. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, I wish we could go back and talk about all those promises. He says, because we know all of these things, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness. Why? Out of reverence for God. Because we are loved, because we are betrothed. 
Since we have these promises, let us purify ourselves. That's the motivation. And 1 John 4, 9 through 11 says it this way. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That's a manifest, it's kind of an old word where it has appeared among us, it's revealed among us. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That propitiation means God satisfied the wrath of God, that God might unleash the mercy and love of God. God is both just and merciful. And that word propitiation is a loaded word, and it says so very much. It says God did the work that it took in order to put you into right fellowship with him, satisfying his justness because he is a good and holy God so that he could release his mercy and love towards us. It's beautiful. It says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God already loves us, we ought to love one another. This is beautiful. Because we are beloved, because we are betrothed, it causes us to pursue purity. Because we are beloved, we want to cleanse and purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of a reverence for God. It also calls us to one another. As we are loved by him, we pursue loving one another. And this purity that it speaks of here, as it talks about the church collectively, we don't have time to get into this, is, is not only about our behavior, it's also about our doctrine. So much of the New Testament is written to purify the doctrine of the church. And I know sometimes it's a scary word, but it means our, our teaching and our understanding of, of who God is, who man is, who our enemy is, why the church is here. These are all important things that we have to understand, and God desires us to line up with his word, with purity of doctrine and purity of behavior. That's why we pursue all of those things. So the fourth thing, the, the second piece of this part <laughs> is this. We, we pursue purity, but the fourth thing, we wait in active anticipation. This is our response as we determine our response. Now, what are you anticipating? I told you we'd read Revelation 19. Let me go ahead and check this out. This is amazing. We talk about this bride and bridegroom coming together where the trumpet will sound. God will bring his church up to himself, and one day we will be in the presence of the Lord. This is that scene, okay? This is incredible. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 4 through 8, it's sort of a prophetic picture that John got a, uh, to see ahead of time, and he's revealed it to us. Here's what it says in, in Revelation 19, verse 4. It says, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now, let your mind's eye kind of open up, and it says, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. You see, this, this multitude is crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Is that not beautiful? This is what we have the, the privilege of anticipating as the bride of Christ. It's not a maybe kind of thing. This is going to happen, and if you're in Christ, you're going to be there. And you're like, well, what if I can't keep it all together? He's going to keep it all together because he finishes what he starts. If he saved you, he's going to finish what he began in you. You just yield to him. He'll work out all the hard stuff. He'll do the heavy lifting. He will transform you. But you are going to be united as the bride of Christ with your bridegroom, Jesus Christ. 
And it says that it was granted, it was given to her. I love that word given. To be clothed in this fine linen, bright and pure. It's not something that we created. It is the righteous deeds of the saints. But it's also those that are imputed to us through Christ. In Philippians 3.9 it says this. We are to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen, by faith, this is crazy. This is the beauty of the gospel. By faith, not by fantastic living. Like we receive justification. And that means that we no longer have to deal with the penalty of sin. God and his justness has to deal with sin. And because of Jesus, because of the, the price that he paid on the cross in his resurrection, we now by faith can receive that as forgiveness for our sin. And no longer when we go to heaven will we be guilty. Instead, we are, it says, imputed with the righteousness of Christ. It's more than just the absence of sin. It is the presence of the righteousness of Christ in your life. You're not getting to go to heaven just because you don't, you're not accountable for the sin you committed. You're getting to go to heaven in addition to that because of the righteousness of Christ was imputed to you. That's crazy. That's scandalous. That's what justification means. And so when you get to heaven, you're like, I don't deserve white linen robes. I know you don't. Neither do I. We get to, it's granted for us to wear them because by faith in Jesus, he has justified us from the penalty of sin. But here's the thing. This is why we say we wait in anticipation, active anticipation, because it doesn't end with justification. We've got this word sanctification, and that word sanct being holy, and holy meaning set apart. So it's, it's the setting apart of believers to where we begin to sanctification or holification, if you will, of the church is that we become to behave the way that God has established what he's, what he's caused to be true in us, who we are comes out in how we live. And that's a progressive thing. And that's why I'm still growing. That's why I'm still a mess in some places. And God has continued to work in me. And, and I'm, I'm praising him for, for each step forward in my relationship. And I know that that process is going to continue till the day I die. But one day, I'll be presented with these robes. And it will go beyond justification that, that sort of freed me from the, the, the penalty of sin. Sanctification, uh, which delivers me from the power of sin over my life as I become more Christ-like. But eventually, when I'm glorified, God says we get a glorified body in him. Justified, sanctified, glorified. I'll be free from the presence of sin. It'll no longer be a part of me anymore. Instead, I'll be imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Pure and holy, dressed in white, washed by Jesus. In his tenderness, he has cleansed me. I didn't do it. You remember in Ephesians chapter 5? He's the one who steps in and cleanses us and makes us acceptable. And he describes this with a word like splendor. That's beautiful. That's maybe a little too much. But it is an act of anticipation. Because God grants us the power to be sanctified. The power to walk in holiness. We still have to yield to that power at work in us. And actively pursue righteousness. That's why it says... Out of reverence for Christ, we purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. We take ownership for the power that God has given us so that we're able to do these things. It is God who does it, but he gives us the power to actively work those things out. Listen, why is this so important as so we kind of wrap up? This is the deal. If we understand and we get the relationship that's defined by God, who we are as the bride of Christ, that changes a lot of things. 
And we start to see that we are actually betrothed to him. That is our relationship, that we are beloved by him. That's how we're walking. That's what's going on in our hearts, whether you believe it or not. And how we are able to sort of respond to that as we determine our response. We get to pursue purity and wait in active anticipation as we look forward to the coming of Christ. It changes some things. I mean, honestly, this is what makes the church so different. It changes our, our perspective. And by that, I want to say you have perspective. I mean, that it gives you the ability to see a moment in the context of God's eternal plan. I'm able to see what's happening right here in this instant in the context of all that God is doing. And that gives me perspective. Now, I don't see it all, but I see enough in Scripture to know that I can submit and yield to that. And I don't have to put all of my weight on one particular moment and try and save it and rescue it and work on it and even sin in order to have that moment that I can let go a little bit and say, with the perspective that you've given me all my life, I can live with open hands and accept what you do for me and, and what you allow of my life. It gives me perspective. Knowing this changes us. It changes our priorities. It gives us, here's how I describe this. Our priorities is the wisdom to place value where God places value and to live accordingly. And you see what God says is valuable and we live according to that. That's how we can live when we get these things. And it gives us passion through suffering and an unbelievable ability to suffer for what we want most. Louis Giglio, I remember he started the whole passion movement. And he defined passion like this. He said, the amount of pain one is willing to endure to reach a goal. Listen, understanding this relationship between Jesus and his people fills us with passion. And that is why when we refer to Holy Week as we're approaching it, and we look at the passion of Jesus, you see his incredible love for us in that he was willing to endure an unbelievable amount of suffering in order to reach his goal, which is you. That is beautiful. That's, I don't know how to explain that. Holy Spirit, explain that to your people. But that very same passion that Jesus walked in, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, it's the same thing for us. For the joy set before us, we actively anticipate this relationship with God. Now, as we close, I, I want to say this. I know that some of you are struggling here because I, I get this. A great love deserves a great response. We get that. But some of you are like, I, I don't know, though, still, like, this is just almost a little bit too good to be true. And I get this. Some things are tough to express with words, and sometimes it takes a demonstration to really explain something. And I think that God knew this. And God gives us this demonstration through the prophet Hosea. And if, if you'll allow me, I just want to remind you of this beautiful truth. See, God had a, a relationship with a man in the Old Testament. His name was Hosea. He was a prophet. He was a messenger for God. And, and God would give him what he needed to say, and he would reveal that to the people. And sometimes with his prophets, God would literally turn his prophets into an object lesson for his people, and they would write about it. And, and that's what's happening here with Hosea. God speaks to Hosea. It says in chapter 1, it says, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. This is crazy. God looks at his prophet, and he says, I want you to go and marry a woman who is very promiscuous. And so he goes and he marries Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, who was a harlot. And here you have this woman. We don't get all the details, maybe a relief, but we don't get all the details of, of how involved that was. But we know she was a promiscuous woman, could potentially have been a prostitute. And over their relationship, they had two sons and they eventually had a daughter. 
And in that relationship, I don't know how long it went on, but clearly it didn't go well. And eventually Gomer sort of goes back to her former way of life and leaves Hosea. And God shows back up again later on, a little bit of narrative we get in Hosea, and he says this. He says, go again to Hosea. Love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Go and do this. Hosea, I want you to go back to her. Go again. It may not have been the first time. Can you imagine God saying that to you? He's been abandoned. He's sitting there with his three kids. She's left him. She's gone back to this incredible uh, life of harlotry. We don't get the picture of exactly what that went down. We don't know what's gone on. Like she's, who knows where she is and what's going on, where she's at and what people she's associated with, how dark and difficult that has turned into. But God says, I want you to go again and I want you to love her again. So Hosea, obedient to the Lord, says, okay, I'll go. And so he begins to go. And we don't get to see how this whole search looked, but you could probably imagine to go and find a former prostitute, return back to her lifestyle, the places you would have to go, this would have been humiliating for Hosea. He's going into difficult places. Who are you looking for? My wife. God says, go again and find her. So Hosea looks. He keeps looking. And he goes and he's asking around. Eventually, we don't get the whole scene. He walks into, I don't know if it was a room. I don't know if she's uh, basically a slave at this point. I, it doesn't tell us all these kind of things. But he looks at Gomer, who is his bride, already belongs to her. And he finds her in apparently a situation where she has allowed herself to belong to someone else. And there's a conversation where essentially they have to discuss a price to buy her back. He's like, how, how much? I want my wife back. Can you imagine her, her face, what would have been going on in her heart, the shame? I didn't want him to find me. But yet, Hosea says, I'll buy her. And for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley, he buys back a wife that already belongs to him. But he bought her back because of the love that God had for her and what God had told him to do. And we see this in scripture. It says, go love her yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. You guys, this was not a story of Hosea and Gomer and their marriage. This is a story of you and I. This is the kind of, I get it. You say, this is too good to be true. I don't understand how God could love me the way that you're saying. I want you to think about this. How devastating and how humiliating would it have been for our God to have to condescend and become one of us and search for us. Jesus said, they said, why are you here? He said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. And he entered into a search for his bride. And he didn't pay 15 shekels of silver. He paid with the ultimate price, his blood, to purchase us back. Even though we already belonged to him, he bought us back because he loves us. We are his bride. I don't know how to get this through to you, but you are the bride of Christ. He loves you. And listen, I don't know what room God found you in, but you were not the pretty cleaned up version of yourself when he showed up. And everything in us in that moment wants to hide behind our shame of what we've done. But I want to say this, that God was unwilling to leave you there. And he was willing to pay the price. And his hand is extended to you and he says, come home with me. You are the bride of Christ and he's calling you into that kind of love relationship with him. 
It's crazy that he called us his bride, but he's done the work. He's shown us this picture of who he is. He loves you. He loves you. He humbled himself to rescue you. Us, we are broken, unfaithful, rebellious people with promiscuous hearts. He has pursued us and rescued us from our enemy and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loved and didn't just clean us up. He was betrothed to us, expressed our love for us and has already set a wedding date for us and he is coming for us and he's gonna set us up in heaven for eternity. That's what we live in. This is where we are. This is the church. This is not an organization that we choose to be a part of or not to be a part of. You are the bride of Christ. You are invited into a love relationship with him. So stop evaluating from the outside, looking in and condemning what's broken about it and say yes God I do I'm willing to become your bride I want to enter in I want to be a part of this I don't want to just take part in it I want to be it I want you I want this listen this is what God says to you Hosea in chapter 2 it says this it's way past this is not talking about Gomer anymore this got bigger it says I will betroth you to me forever yes I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in loving kindness and in compassion I will betroth you to me in faithfulness then you will know the Lord I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion praise God and I will say to those who are not my people you are my people and they will say, you are my God. You can push back and say, I don't believe it. It's too good to be true. Uh, let me point your attention to this cross. That was the price he was willing to pay to establish a relationship with you. We as the church severely underestimate the value of the church to our God. God has placed a price on it that is far higher than anything we could ever imagine or ever repay. His love for you is outrageous. It's scandalous. If God were to have a peer, he doesn't. But if he were to, question, why are you loving these people like this? I made them. Listen, I don't know if we can ever understand the answer, but he does love you. It's time for us to stop attending church, evaluating church, and begin belonging to it. Because listen, when you do, and you allow him to define the relationship with you, and you start really living as though you're betrothed, start living like you're beloved, then you're going to respond by pursuing purity, living in active anticipation as the bridegroom waits for the bride. And it is life-changing, the way that reorders our entire life. It says that we are sojourners, that we are, we are aliens here in a foreign world. That's why, because we don't think like the world, because we're headed for a destination that is otherworldly. It is not what the, the world sees. So what makes you so crazy to the world is because you see past this world and you see the destiny that God has set up for you. This kind of love leaves a mark on you. It changes you. This morning, if you want to become the bride of Christ collectively with the church and you would enter to a relationship with him, it's simple. Guys, I made it complicated. He just said, look, I've revealed this to you by faith. I want you to receive my righteousness. I don't want you to come making promises of how you're going to fix everything. By faith, I want you to receive my righteousness that I purchased for you on the cross and my resurrection. I want you to repent of your sin, turn away from your former way of life, 
and I want you to enter into a relationship with me. And I will do the heavy lifting. I will put my spirit in you like a ring on your finger to seal you for the one day when we'll be together. And my spirit in you is more powerful than you are. It will transform you and make you like me over time. And one day I'll finish the deal when you're with me in heaven and I'll set aside eternity for you. But you gotta trust me. You gotta put your faith in me. Stop putting your faith in you. Put your faith in me. I got this. You come to me and I will heal you. I will wash you. I will cleanse you. And I will make you a bride clothed in white in splendor. Listen, that's what God wants to do with each of us. He's doing that collectively that's never happened in your life it's always been about religion you've always been like I don't know listen it's not like that you've been invited into this relationship with our God we want to thank you one more time for taking the time to listen to these messages that God's provided our fellowship we believe he's doing something special among us and would love for you to be a part of it we hope that you'll take the time to come and visit us in person someday soon and we invite you to visit our website covenantcommunitylj.com There you'll find information on how to contact us if you have a prayer request or if there's a specific way we can minister to you and your family. Until then, God bless you.